about fly fishing internet radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Michael Karansi, and he'll be answering your questions on Mongolia, Genghis Khan's home waters. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the internet. If you'd like to ask Michael a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded. will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it while you're on the show and uh, let other people know about the great show we have going on tonight. Content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing business with Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Michael Karansi about Mongolia Genghis Khan's home waters. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive, clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. Lee's Ferry Anglers provides professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Again, it's leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Michael, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Look for the link under Michael's section that says register for a free drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. I've got a list of books here that I can give away, and I'll be sending that list out to whoever the winner is, and they can pick a book from the list. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something that Mike and I talk about during the show, and you'll just submit your answer along with your name and location using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely and use your best typing skills, take notes, and maybe you'll win a book from Stackpole Books. Our guest tonight is Michael Caranzi. While teaching at the fly shop, Michael also guided full-time in the early 2000s on all of the Northern California's famous watersheds, including the Lower Sacramento River, the Upper Sac, McLeod, Hat Creek, Pitt River, Fall River, and Trinity River. From 2005 to 2013, he managed the fly shop's Northern California Outfitters Guide Service and Private Water Programs. 
Michael's passion for travel led him to begin hosting trips to international destinations, and he soon transitioned from the guiding to managing sales and operations for international fisheries, including Kamchatka, Mongolia, Belize, Bahamas, Seychelles, Kiribati, Brazil, Bolivia, Argentina, Chile, Cuba, Mexico, and more. For over a decade now, Michael has traveled the globe with fly rod in hand in search of the most remote places and most exotic fish he could find. Throughout his travels, Mongolia in particular became a special place for Michael. It's a magical place, wild and beautiful, full of warm-hearted people, incredible history, and of course, the taimen, perhaps the most awesome of all freshwater fish. After several memorable adventures, Michael began working full-time with Fish Mongolia and Mongolia River Outfitters in 2019. Michael is also an accomplished author, having published stories in almost every major fly fishing magazine in the U.S., as well as several international magazines in Italy and Russia. His first published book is scheduled to print later this year, Poor Man's Rest, The Legacy of Belize's First Fly Fishing Lodge. Michael, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Yeah, thanks, Roger. I'm uh, excited to be here. Well, good. Yeah, so am I. I always like to talk about exotic places. <laughs> and my yeah, just talking about fishing is always good. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Sometimes I do more of that than fishing, which is a problem. <laughs> Personal. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, um, lots of questions tonight about Mongolia. You know, it is super far away, not easy to get to, kind of on, I think, many people's bucket list. But tell us about, you know, Mongolia's location in the world, because it's kind of in the middle of uh, some not-so-friendly countries right now. And tell us if that's affected, uh, you know, visiting there or traveling there. Yeah, totally. It's uh, and it's interesting. It is a long ways away, but it's actually not that difficult to get to. And certainly geopolitically, it's interesting, especially in today's current uh, global political scene. Um, but yeah, getting there is actually really easy. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more as the show comes on. But there's just so many flights in and out of Seoul or Istanbul, depending on where you're coming from, and direct flights from there into UB. So it's actually, I've had trips to a lot of seemingly closer places that have been harder to get to and from. But uh, yeah, as far as geopolitics go, Mongolia is interesting. It's a landlocked country, neighboring yeah. uh, Russia to the north and China to the south. And interesting 2,000 plus years of history with uh, all of those countries that used to be part of Mongolia when Chinggis conquered most of the known world. The Mongolians actually, under the Khans, started Moscow. The, the capital of Russia was in a different place before they conquered everything and set up their own people in Moscow. And, of course, they conquered China, and they were longtime enemies before Genghis Khan and for years after, and then going through the Bolshevik Revolution when the Russians controlled uh, Mongolia and was part of the Soviet Union, and then China was always trying to have an influence there throughout the Chinese Revolution, and just lots of interesting history there. Mongolia did peaceably leave the Soviet Union in 1981, and they formed a democratic republic, but they've always remained close with Russia in many ways. They've never had close ties to China, except that they're neighbors and share a long land border, so they obviously have to get along. So they're interesting. They really play it close to the vest. Politically, they keep their close ties with Russia and keep things amicable with China while also kind of trying to be Switzerland in many regards. 
and also mm -hmm. yeah. keep an open mind to the West. You know, they're really close with the U.S. Pope Francis actually was there last week. So it's a really open place, and they're try to be careful with their neighbors, but they're also open to the world and really want to share the beauty and culture of Mongolia with the rest of the world. And they're some of the best people you'll ever meet anywhere, and they're very proud of being Mongolian and they're proud of their history, and they really want to share it with people. So it's an interesting location, but incredibly yeah. safe. They love tourists. They love Europeans. They love Americans. They just like meeting people and sharing Mongolia with them. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's a large country. I mean, I'm just looking out in relationship to China. I don't know. It looks like landmass-wise, maybe a third the size of China, something like that. Is that close? Yeah, it's a huge country. China's obviously bigger, so is Russia, but they're two of the biggest. Mongolia, for people in the U.S., easy comparison is it's close to half the size of the continental U.S. Wow. Uh, so yeah. a lot of space and... It is the least densely populated country in the entire world. So all that space, and you have a population of roughly about 3 million people, and oh over gosh. half of that population lives in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. The whole rest of the country is very sparsely populated. There are people everywhere, but they still live the traditional nomadic lifestyle. They live in their traditional gares. Uh, they move typically four times a year with their herds to fresh pasture lands, winter houses, in the wintertime, and still no private land ownership, no fences. They just move with their animals throughout the course of the wow. year. Now, I'm looking at the map, and I see the capital there, as you, you just described. That's where you fly into, right? I would assume. Correct. Yeah. Yes. What part of the country are we going to talk about tonight as far as fishing goes? So we operate in two different parts of the country based on the season. If you're looking at the map, the whole southern part of Mongolia is the vast Gobi Desert. It's sparsely populated, of course, although there's people down there as well. So we're primarily focused with Fish Mongolia in the summer months in kind of the northwest part of the country, up by Hobskull Lake in that region. And in the fall, with Mongolia River Outfitters, we're in the far northeast part of the country in the Henty Imag, which is actually the birthplace of Chinggis Khan, and that river is sacred in Mongolia because it's where he came from and where he still returned to whenever he had to bring the clans together to meet and talk and figure out their next conquest. And supposedly he's buried somewhere up in there too, but it was a secret. Nobody knows for sure where he lies. Okay, okay. Now, um, yeah, you had mentioned earlier, I think you said to get there, you the closest departure points would be Seoul or Istanbul. Those, Those are the most popular. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Traditionally, a lot of people went through Beijing or Hong Kong as well. COVID kind of changed that with China being totally shut down for so long. I imagine in years to come, we'll start seeing more flights coming back through there. And there's actually a lot of talk about direct flights from the U.S. potentially as early as next year. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. So what would that be, like an 18-hour flight, 14-hour flight, something like that? Yeah, well, it's... I mean, I mean, if you're going direct. Seoul, yeah, flight to Seoul, for example, is usually about 11 hours, plus or minus. Uh, okay. It's usually less coming back with the jet stream. And it's only a three-hour flight from Seoul to Ulaanbaatar. So my guess would be a direct flight from the West Coast would probably be in that 12-hour range. Yeah, okay. 
You had mentioned, well, Adam in Granby, Colorado, wrote in and said, uh, what's the best time of year to go to Mount Mongolia? So you had just mentioned a, a minute ago, I think you said summer and fall. Was that it? Or? Yeah, you don't want to go in the winter. Average temps in the winter is 40 <laughs> below. Oh, oh. <laughs> but, yeah, the legal fishing season for time in there is June 15th through the end of October. And so really anywhere in that is potentially good. So the nice thing about us with two different river systems, close to 500 miles of river between the two rivers that we operate and manage and protect, is both rivers geographically are different. Uh, Fish Mongolia, we're up in the Altai Mountains. It's higher elevation, further to the west. So the best season there is earlier. It's going to be that June, July, August time frame. It can fish well into September, but it starts getting cold then. And so we shift over to the eastern operation, late August, September, October. Uh, that river in the summertime, further to the east, it's a little bit lower elevation. It gets a little bit more monsoon rain, so it tends to be high and off color in the summer months. But by the end of August, it's dropping into shape, and it fishes well all the way through the end of the season. We typically wrap up our trips around the middle of October just because it starts by late October, it's getting cold up there. So we try to get out before it gets too cold. But between those seasons, anywhere in that window is potential for good fishing on either river. I know we're going to talk about quite a few different species that are available to fly fishers traveling over there. But of course, time is the you know, kind of the star of the show, I guess. Uh, and, and you're fishing timing in both of those areas? Correct, yeah. Both rivers are protected as time and sanctuaries. And uh, from the research we've done over the last 20 years show that likely the two strongest populations of timing left in the world. So there's a, another river system in Mongolia that has some good fish populations as well, a couple of them. We're starting to see impacts there from overfishing, but we're able to kind of limit angling pressure on our rivers so that the fish are there. Uh, Timing are never easy, but they're around for sure. And uh, everybody's going to encounter them. You're saying uh, fishing pressure from tourists fishing there or from locals using it as uh, food? Uh, it's, the Mongolian culture is not big on eating fish. They're primarily meat oh. eaters, really. So it's protected to some degree in that regards. Certainly some of the locals will, will fish and harvest fish for food occasionally. You see more of that with trout than you do with timon. But not a lot of that, really. We are seeing an increase okay. in local fishing pressure, but the locals that fish now are more fly fishing and do it for sport, and they're catching release, and they're on board with protecting the fish as well. So, in fact, there's a famous rap group in Mongolia that you know raps about fly fishing and stuff. It's pretty cool. But... The biggest pressures really are from poachers, and they tend to come from Russia or Eastern Europe, fishing with treble hooks and that whole fish-and-kill mentality. So we do a lot of work with local rangers. We bought a motorcycles and petrol this year just to patrol the rivers to make sure illegal poaching isn't happening and those fish are protected. But some places where they don't have the system in place that we have with the government where we're managing and protecting the river, there's not those protections in place, and they are at risk from harvest. You know, a 40-inch timon is potentially 40 years old, so if one of those fish gets taken out, it takes 40 years to grow a new one. They're real susceptible to harvest. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Never even considered kind of sport fishing coming in there from Russia and Eastern Europe. But yeah, why not, I guess, but they're, yeah, like you say, treble hooks or bait or whatever they're using, quickly clean out a river. Huh? 
especially if they're loading their coolers and going home. Um, is Simon, you know, I don't know that, that you've had it to eat. Is it a good fish to eat, like trout? I have no idea. Definitely never eaten one, and I hope I never do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just curious as to those others, you know, from Russia and Eastern Europe coming in. They're taking them out to to eat them. I take. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, they must like. But them some of it's just sport fishing, and they put them back. But you know, when you're fishing with a treble hook and you're holding a fish like that out of the water for dragging it up on the bank, you know, I've seen the videos and photos yeah. and you know just yeah. reality is even if they put that fish back the chances of it surviving are slim so yeah yeah they just don't take the care yeah right um so you know during those two periods you know during the summer and the fall what is the weather like there could you compare it to something in the u.s that we're familiar with yeah it's, it's, the closest comparison really is to the Rocky Mountain West, you know, the like the Montana mountain ranges. Okay. It's, it's very similar, and, and it's funny, when you're there, you, you look up and you feel like you could be in, you know, Montana 200 years ago, really. Yeah. It has that sort of feel to it, and the weather's very similar, you know. It's summertime, it could be 80 degrees and sunny and warm, and you're wearing shorts and a T-shirt, and the next day it could snow. <laughs> so yeah. uh, you kind of want to be prepared for all of that. And then the later you get in the season, again, just like in the Rockies, it gets, you know, yeah. closer to fall and winter, and those two seasons can blend together day-to-day, week-to-week. But that's a good comparison. It's very comparable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember just a couple of years ago, my buddy and I were doing the trip up through Montana, and we came back down through Yellowstone, and uh, and we had just had a beautiful day, just gorgeous, you know, typical blue sky, Rocky Mountain day, and then... We were staying in a KOA campground, and we saw uh, you know, a piece of paper on the doorway that night. 18 inches of snow predicted by uh, tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, and we were like, oh, yeah, here's the Rockies. I said, we better fish fast tomorrow because we were dragging a drift boat, you know, and I didn't want to drive pulling that in the snow, 18 inches of snow. and that kind of... So we fished the morning, got out of there, and got down to Jackson and started the snow by then, but... Yeah, I can imagine the same kind of thing in Mongolia, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. Uh, you, know, the, you never the, know what's over the mountain. Yeah. Yep. Pardon? The first question on everybody's mind in the morning, you walk out of your gear and you look outside and you debate, am I wearing shorts today or am I wearing my waders and fleece? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's take a quick break here, Michael, and when we come back, we'll dig more into what's happening over there in Mongolia. Good. The Ugly Bug Fly Shop in Casper, Wyoming, has been serving fly fishers in Wyoming and around the world since 1983. Their selection of top-of-the-line gear and a huge assortment of flies is one of the best in the land. All products are available in their fly shop and online. Looking for advice? Just give them a call, and their expert professional staff will help you with whatever you need. Visit the Ugly Bug Fly Shop today at UglyBugFlyShop.com or call them at 866-845-9284. Again, uglybugflyshop.com, or call them at 866-845-9284. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio podcast, and we're talking with Michael Currency about Mongolia, Genghis Khan's home waters. If you'd like to ask Michael a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your questions. So, Michael, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world. So, uh, 
you tell us about, uh, you know, the two businesses you have over there? And also, uh, I think you said you've got a book in the works. So uh, why don't you share with us what's going on? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I try to fish as much as I can. Pretty busy these days with I coach a lot of soccer, and I have a 13-year-old son who also loves fly fishing. He's getting really good at rowing, so whenever we can, we fish here locally. But uh, also like to travel still. Argentina is a place I'm a big fan of. I'll be heading down there in December, fishing with Patagonia Outfitters, and then uh, Belize. Belize is one of my favorite places. I go every year, hosting trips down there, and uh, from for the last. I don't know, 20 years I've been doing that. I've developed relationships and learned a lot about the country and worked out, just finished a book project about the history of fly fishing there and really how it started with uh, Barothi's Caribbean Lodge, which later became Belize River Lodge. And so excited the book should be published hopefully this winter. And for anybody that's fished in Belize, it's pretty interesting, I would hope. A lot of the well-known guides there all got their start at that lodge and a lot of the things that they did there kind of helped start the conservation ethos there in Belize where they worked to, you know, develop tourism properly and ban gill nets and catch and release fishing and all that sort of stuff. So it's all tied together and with the place I love and the type of fishing I enjoy quite a bit. Well, good. When you get that published, we'll have to do another show together and talk about the history of Belize. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, sounds good. I'd love that. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell people the domain names of your two websites for Mongolia in case they want to check out what you guys have to offer over there. Yeah, you bet. So it's uh, fishmongolia.com and mongoliariveroutfitters.com. Both really the same company. Yeah. Yep. But they just work in different parts of the country, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Okay, again, that was fishmongolia.com, and the second one is... MongoliaRiverOutfitters.com. MongoliaRiverOutfitters.com. Okay, so there you go, folks. Want to learn more about? We'll talk more about what they do here. Just in fact, next few minutes, let's dig into that, Michael. Uh, You did mention that the people over there are really friendly and so forth. Tell us more about those people. You know, dig in a little deeper for me on who Mongolians are. Yeah, they're. Just really an interesting people. Again, I've traveled all over the world over the course of my career and, and met a lot of wonderful people everywhere. But there's just something about the Mongolian culture and personality that's really endearing. As soon as you meet these people, you feel like you've been friends for life and you want to continue being friends for the rest of your life. They want to please you, but they want to share what's special about their history and culture and their place. They're very tied to the natural world, which I think us as anglers, you know, we, we feel the same way, so there's that instant connection. They love song, they love the wilderness, and it just makes them just wonderful people to spend time with. A lot of our Mongolian staff, you know, they came to us over the years as kids. Some of them were poaching on the rivers, and we found them and said, hey, instead of, you know, poaching this fish, you should learn how to fly fish and catch and release, and they become the most important conservationists, well-respected throughout the country. Incredible anglers great casters, some of the best fly tires I know. And they sit around, you know, in the Mongolian winter and tie flies all winter long, just creating crazy things at a time in might eat. And they'll sing songs with you around the campground. They're just always positive, upbeat, ready to have a good time. They love fishing. And so you're on the river. It's not that nine-to-five guide mentality where, you know, you they're watching the clock. They're out there 
hungry and happy and wanting to go fishing with you. And it's just it's part of the experience is getting to know the people and the staff and the hostesses and the gear boaters. There's so many people on these trips. They really make it special. Cool, cool, good. Good to hear. Once you get to the capital there, you fly in, how do you get to these two remote areas to start fishing? Planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> A little bit of everything. Horses. Camels. No camels or horses? <laughs> no, yeah, horses and camels. We do a trip with, with horses and camels as well. So, okay. um, yeah, it's a geographically, you know, remote place. So everybody lands in Ulaanbaatar. We put all of our guests up in the hotel in the city the night you arrive. And, again, the night you come back to the city before you drive home. A lot of our guests will actually come in an extra day or some a week and spend extra time and do other travel and other trips as well. We'll take and show you around the city. There's some really cool Buddhist monasteries, some great museums. There's a cultural performance show called Tumanek that I just love. It's beautiful with Mongolian traditional throat singing and song and dance. It's just amazing. So a lot of you, you come in, you get a little bit of this cultural sense in the city for a day or two, and then from there we travel to the river. And that can be, depending on the river and the time of year, with Fish Mongolia it's usually a about a 90-minute commercial flight to a smaller town called Moron. And then from there, we travel overland in land cruisers up and over the mountain across the rivers and to get to the camps. And then one of the trips from there, you know, you'll take horses and camels up even further up into the headwaters the next day. And uh, so it's pretty cool. And then the other river is typically we drive into the river. It's anywhere from six to a two-day drive, depending on which part of the river you're starting at. And the drives really are part of the adventure. You see the Mongolian countryside. You meet the locals along the way. You're driving through the middle of nowhere and suddenly see a couple kids wrestling without another soul around. It's, you know, herds of sheep, herds of camels, herds of goats, just, you know, here and there. It's, it's part of the Mongolian experience. It's definitely getting to the rivers. It's not always easy, but it's, uh, it's definitely something that's a part of the trip, and, and a lot of people really enjoy that component of it. When you say to you're... The adventure. Yeah. When you say you take a short commercial flight, is that like a 14-seater like you'd find in Belize or something, or is it a commercial jet? Or I have no idea. What? Uh, yeah, no, it's, there are uh, a couple different uh, local airlines that fly the route, and sometimes it's a, you know, like 50-seater, and sometimes it's a 100-seater. There's some oh, tourist okay. stuff in that commercial part. Yeah. yeah, so they're normal planes. Yeah, okay, okay. Then once you're there, do the, does the staff already have camps set up, or do they travel with you? How does that all work, and what kind of accommodations are you staying? Yeah, so a bit of both. Several of the different trips that we run, uh, we have fixed camps along the river, so the staff will go in before the season and set up gear camps. So we stay in the traditional Mongolian gear. It's like a yurt, but they came before the yurt felt line circular dwellings. Um, it's what a lot of the Mongolians live in year-round, even in the capital city. Um, so it's a part of the experience, staying in the garage. They have a wood-burning stove in the middle, a couple of comfortable beds, super comfortable. And so you're going floating every day to a new camp along the river. And then a couple of the camps, or a couple of the float trips that we do in a little more remote places where we can't drive in to set up camps ahead of time, we take tent teepees down. We set up basically the same camps, but we haul everything with us and staying in teepees on the river instead of the bigger gears. Okay, okay. And how many anglers are you fishing with? How do you arrange those trips? 
Yeah, we really like small, intimate experiences. So typically our groups are going to be either four or six guests. So you really feel like okay. you have this chunk of natural world all to yourself. And when you set up a trip, does that group, do you have to travel with, do you have to know all those people or do you, you know, match people up in those groups and fill the spots? Yeah, all of the above. So we get full groups that yeah. come together that like to just be together. They all know each other and an inclusive group, which is always nice. But we get a lot of uh, strangers that come together. It's not uncommon for us to have four single anglers on a trip together, never knew each other, and by the end of the week they're best friends and, and continue fishing together for years to come. So we've had a lot of stories of people that met in Mongolia and never knew each other and then come back every year to fish with each other more because of the personal bonds you form on a trip like this. Yeah, very cool, very cool. What's the food like? What are you eating over there? Yeah, the food's good. Um, it's wilderness trips, so it's not fine dining, but uh, it's a broad mix. We try to do a little bit of local Mongolian flair. Mongolians eat a lot of mutton, which isn't always the best, but uh, they <laughs> camp cooks on the river. They do the best of the Mongolian meals. So booze is one of my favorites. Little uh, mutton dumplings, really good, and they do a horsure, which is like empanadas. Oh, those are tasty and a whore hog, which is a traditional Mongolian feast. It's kind of like an Argentine asado. So those are all really good. And then we mix in some, you know, other kind of more familiar fare, steaks and chicken and pork, and always lots of soups and vegetables. Mongolians are big on vegetables and salads. So there's a lot of good food. Nobody goes hungry for sure. Jim in Ohio asks, he says, what do you pack in your first aid kit? Do you need to take a water filter? Are those things you take care of? Or your guests? Yeah, all the water on the river is filtered, so you don't need to bring any of that stuff. Uh, the staff, we have huge staff on all these trips. It's like there's probably three or four staff to every guest. Um, oh, wow. There's always plenty of potable drinking water around. The first aid kits that we have on camp, you know, have all the basic stuff and basic meds. Personally, I always take everywhere I go just the usual standard Pepto-Bismol and Imodium and Oh, Cipro, just in case. I've never needed that in Mongolia, but I've needed Pepto a few times. Just as with any travel, you get, you know, traveler's gut sometimes. That's the most yeah. common thing that we see. It's just a little bit of traveler's gut that you need to calm down. Some uh, Aleve or Ibuprofen for your casting elbows after a week of casting for timing is definitely a good thing to have. Okay. But it's pretty simple. Yeah. We want most of what people need. Yeah. What about uh, security? Any worries about security? Uh, in the capital city, not really. Just like any city, you got to keep your head around just in case, you know, look sure. for potential pickpockets or petty theft. But I don't know that we've ever had any issues there. Certainly not like, you know, big cities in the U.S. I feel a lot safer in Ulaanbaatar than I do in San Francisco, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> and then on the countryside, yeah, the countryside's very safe. You know, and, and we have just people know us on the rivers. Locals, I said, they're very friendly people. There are not issues there with safety and security. Yeah, yeah. question came in from Roy Fukushima in Orange, California. He says, I just turned 70, fairly fit, so wondering if I can handle this once-in-a-lifetime adventures trip. What are the sleeping arrangements? Is fly fishing gear and waders included? Is there cell phone service? Being on the other side of the world, do your trips offer or help with sightseeing excursions before or after 
the fishing trip. Part of that you've already you've kind of answered already, but you want to fill in the blanks there for him? Yeah, totally. Hi, Roy. Those are great questions. Yeah, so absolutely. Anybody can do one of these trips. As far as, you know, the fitness and things like that, the travel, the accommodations are really comfortable, especially on the float trips where we're in the gears. You have a bed. You have a shower every night if you want one. You, you know, the, the ladies will come in and make your fire in the wood-burning stove in the morning and bring coffee to your bedside. It's very comfortable in that regard. The biggest thing from a physicality standpoint is just the fishing itself. They're long days. Like I said, the guys fish hard. The guys want to be on the river and want you to be catching fish. And especially if you're focusing on timing, it's a lot of, I'm sorry, on timing, uh, it's a lot of casting. And sometimes with larger flies, that part can be strenuous. But that's up to you. You can always sit, relax, and enjoy the scenery. These rivers are places you can just sit and float and watch the world go by and still have a great time. And it's also good to take a break and fish for trout with lighter tackle from time to time. The trout fishing can be really good at certain times of the year, especially. You know, that part of it I don't worry about from a fitness standpoint. The rest of it's pretty comfortable. The travel's long, but it's not arduous. You know, when we drive to the rivers, it's in comfortable land cruisers. The, guy, uh, the drivers stop a lot so you can get out and stretch. There's always plenty of drinks. So we really make the trips comfortable, especially for as remote as they are. Okay. And as far as, yeah, sleeping arrangements, typically either in the gares or the teepees, there's two guests in each one. The gares are really spacious, lots of room, shelves, blankets, tables. It's like a hotel room with a dirt floor, you know. Um, <laughs> the teepees are a little bit smaller, but there's still plenty of room to stand up in and change and store your stuff. The main difference is the teepees just don't have the stove. So pretty comfortable with that regards. We have warm yak hair blankets in all the camps to keep people warm. On the TP trips, you do want to bring a sleeping bag, especially to, to keep warm later in the summer and fall, but pretty comfortable overall. As far as gear and waders go, you do want to bring those with you. The one thing we do provide, we do provide all the flies. It's hard to get good time and flies commercially tied, so a lot of the guides just tie those up, and we have all the flies on hand on the river, although a lot of guests They'll choose to tie their own and bring some, which is great. It's part of the fun of the trip. It's making your own concoction or tying with the guides at night in the in the dining gear is always fun. But you will want to bring your own waders and rods and reels for sure. Their self-service, a year ago, there was none anywhere. <laughs> We're finding it <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia. There's self-service now popping up every once in a while. So I would say there's a little bit, but it's not something you want to count on. We're totally off the grid out there. There's no electricity in the camps. So if you want to charge stuff, bring your own chargers. Solar chargers work great. And then, you know, I hear from people leading up to the trip sometimes, him and Han about that, but invariably, by the time, I just talked to a guy yesterday that got back a couple weeks ago from two weeks over there, and he was like, the best part of the trip was I unplugged for almost three whole weeks. I didn't look at an email. I didn't plug in on anything. It was amazing. Yeah. So, you know, there's something to be said for that in today's world where we're plugged in and looking at screens all the time to be able to just take a step back and enjoy life for a minute. Yeah. So we have, you know, emergency contact, obviously, with sat phones and in-reaches and things like that. So we can communicate if we need to, but we try to just be out there and enjoy where we're at. Yeah. That's something that's really hard to find nowadays. I, know. I mean, the, the only time that I've really experienced that is, you know, going down the Grand Canyon for 21 days and, 
uh, being able to call out once, you know. And it takes a getting used to. It takes, like, for me, it was like, oh, about three days in, you start getting on river time, and everything else falls away. You know what I mean? You just, all your worries go away, and, uh, yeah, being off the grid is really pleasant. <laughs> it's a I'm good sure feeling, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This world, we're so connected all the time. It's, it's yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. But anyway, that's our world. Adam in Grandy, Colorado says, uh, how much does a trip like this cost and how long should one go? That's a really important question. Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, so our trips for 2024 are 7500 U.S. dollars for the trip, which is usually nine to 11 nights and six or seven days on the river, depending on the trip. Mm-hmm. And that includes almost everything once you get to Ulaanbaatar. So we take care of on-the-river guides, fishing, drinks, food, everything, except gratuities on the river. We take care of the hotel in Ulaanbaatar. The only uh, the hotel is really good breakfast. You're on your own for dinners when you're in UB for a night or two, but it's really inexpensive, and there's actually some really good restaurants and dining there as well. So pretty much everything except for international airfare getting there and then tips once you're there. Otherwise, we take care of the rest for 7500 Oh, that's fun. Uh, that's uh, cheaper than some Alaskan trips. <laughs> yeah. Cheaper than most Alaskan trips these days. Yeah. It's been crazy yeah. how, how prices are going up these days. Yeah, that's fun. I expect it to be much higher. So. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, we um, – Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I just, we try to keep these trips as something anybody – can do an experience, you know. Some people may need to mm-hmm. save a few years to get there and do it, but it's doable because it's something yeah. everybody should experience. It's an amazing place and part of the world and a unique experience that, you know, I, I think anybody that um, could save up or has the coin and time is a big part should do. And so I guess yeah. that was the other part of the question was how long should you go? Yeah. And, and that's up to everybody. There's uh, – Having done a lot of these trips in different places all over the world, I can tell you a week is never enough. <laughs> but in, the, <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the, the busy life of things, sometimes that's all we can do. And you factor in even just six or seven days on the river of Mongolia with travel time and everything ends up being close to two weeks total travel, you know, 12 to 14 days. So I understand right. it's, it's hard for a lot of people to do longer, but just like you referenced on the Grand Canyon trip, it takes – a few days to really settle in and be immersed in the experience. And uh, you can still get a great time out of a week, and most of our guests do that. But if you can swing two weeks on the river, that's life-changing right there. That changes your whole perspective on things when if you can do that. Yeah, and it, of course, when you're traveling, you know, to the other side of the world you, or any place, I mean, you always have to consider weather. That's what I always tell people is, hey, you know, I mean, you can have three bad days of weather. It might be, and so you want to be somewhere like that at least a week on the ground, on the river, in my mind, anyway. So, yeah. Well, the more um, time you have, the better the odds of getting, you know, the right day when conditions line up. Yeah. Like you said, that's true anywhere in the world. You know, it's weather yeah. is yeah. a factor. We're, we're dealing with Mother Nature. We can't control what she does, and. You could have a week of bad weather, and then the second week could be great. But So you, yeah, you have to increase your odds with more time. Yeah, I have friends of mine that went down to Belize, and they were down there, you know, planning to stay for a month. In the first two weeks, they had bad weather. Fishing was terrible, yep. you know. 
and it cleared up finally. But they were getting pretty. They were happy that they had planned for a month because if they hadn't, that would have been a blowout, you know. So, yeah, yeah, you never know. Let me take a quick break here, Michael, and then we'll come back and um, talk more about the fishing now and what we need out fishes over there. So hang tight. I'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create flies and catch fish for over 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio Podcast, and we're talking with Michael about Mongolia, Genghis Khan's home waters. If you'd like to ask him a question, Go to our homepage, fill out that form, send it over, and we'll try to get it answered tonight on the show. Okay, so fishing. Can you describe the rivers that you fish, what they're like? Uh, you kind of gave us a feel for topography, but are these big, big flowing rivers uh, or small creeks, or what are we looking at when we go to the river? Yeah, I would say they're on the you know medium to largish side. Not huge rivers, but big. So we do float trips to cover a lot of water that way. There's ample opportunities to wade, especially in the summer months. They're not huge rivers, but like the Yellowstone or the Smith River or Montana, somewhere like that. Not as big as the Sacramento River here in Redding, but, you know, in that kind of size range. So they're great floating rivers. And uh, both a little bit different in terms of topography. You know, Fish Mongolia, that river is maybe one of the most beautiful rivers in the entire world. It's just spectacular as you float through this canyon stretch, big peaks all around you and um, rolling grasslands and hills and a little bit of everything and big boulder gardens, things like that. So you're fishing a lot of different type of water, but there's more gradient there. And then with Mongolia River Outfitters, it's more of the but traditional with, before Mongolia. You, yeah, oh, before you go on, what's the name of the, the river you just talked about? So we're pretty careful about not talking about the names of the rivers, to be perfectly oh, honest. Okay. And part of our uh, conservation thing, you know, in Mongolia, you can you can drive anywhere, right? So uh, we've seen rivers over there that people talk about the names for years and years and years, and those are the rivers now that I see a lot of poaching pressure and people coming from all over. So um, that's one of the okay. reasons we have the two names, because instead of talking about the names of the rivers, we talk about the names of the programs and try to keep okay, those rivers at least a little bit safe. Sure, sure. Okay. So go ahead and talk about the I could tell you, river. But then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well some days um, that, that might be a good option. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tell people, once they book the trip, I'll tell them the name, I'll give them the GPS coordinates then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, so, that's a beautiful and, river. And, and the uh, river? Then, yeah, that river also beautiful. It's more that that's the one where Chinggis Khan was born, and 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 sacred water there. And uh, it's it's also beautiful in a different way. It's got the rolling hillsides. It's more of the traditional Mongolian steppe, mixed with birch and large forests. And go through a couple canyons there, here and there. And that one's interesting because it's a similar size overall, 
but it changes nature a lot. So at times you get this kind of raw meandering river, and then at times it goes into myriad braided channels where it's like fishing a, a smaller stream. So a lot of variance there as you work your way day to day down the river. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, any lake fishing at all? Not what we do. There are some lakes in Mongolia that can fish well, not for timing, but for trout and especially grayling, actually. There's there's some famous, infamous, not well-known, famous lakes that have some really big grayling there. But we don't target those specifically, but there there are some lakes there that have good fishing. And most of the days you're floating the rivers and then, I take it, camping further down the river at a designated spot. You're not going up and down the river, back and forth, like we would here in the States, shuttling? Correct. Yep. Okay. You're, you'll, uh, for most of the trips, you're going to float 10 to 12 miles a river a day. So a typical day, you wake up in the morning to the sound of uh, one of the ladies coming into the gear and lighting the fire and living in a hot cup of coffee right next to your bed so you can wake up a little bit before you roll out of bed, stumble out the door of the gear and go have a nice breakfast and make your way to the boats for the river, hop in the boats, usually, depending on the day, time of year, 8 or 9 o'clock, and on the river the rest of the day, we have great shore lunches, stop somewhere together, have a hot lunch on the shore during the day, a glass of wine or a cold beer, and then keep going down, get back into camp, depending on the day, sometime between 6 or 8 or 9 o'clock at night sometimes in the summer when the days are long, have dinner, some people will go fishing after dinner if they want, most people are ready to have a beer or a glass of wine or some chingus vodka tonic and campfire, sing some songs and go to bed and just repeat the next day. Okay, okay. And um, we'll get into the species here in a minute. Lance Tomar in Colorado says, Michael, I'm headed your way for the Lower River Expedition on October 4th. Three weeks away, can't wait. Not knowing the size of that section of river, can you give me a rough idea of the usual bank-to-bank distance and water depth we can expect? Any insider tips on where the big ones hang out? <laughs> I'm sure that's not <laughs> going to be announced. <laughs> yeah, the that's on section four, about uh, yeah, 50 yards down on the left by that birch tree, right? <laughs> that's one of the things about timing that's really at times frustrating and at times intoxicating is you never know where they're going to be. They are, they move during the rivers, they're hunters, right? Their nickname is the river wolf and they're on the prowl, they're on the hunt and you never know where you're going to find them. So every second that you're on that river, every cast that you make could be the one that has the fish of a lifetime on it. There's no, you know, there's certain places where the guys see big fish regularly, right? But that doesn't mean they're there. They could move up or down. You know, we track all the fish we catch. We do face ID with them. And there's fish that we've caught 200 kilometers upstream a year later. So they're moving through these river systems. Wow. So there are days where it seems like there's not a fish in the river, and there are days where it seems like there's a fish on every rock. I will say on that lower river, and it changes a lot down there. You know, you got sections where it's wide, maybe 100 feet across, and you've got sections where you go through braided channels where, you know, it's 20 feet across and, and everything in between. One place I see fish, especially if the water's low on that stretch, is a lot of times at the head of islands or where channels braid around, they'll sit in the tail out right between those two channels. like they're waiting for 
bait fish to, to go one way or the other and they attack them. Or, but you'll find them in any type of water. You'll see them in shallow riffles. You'll, I've seen them crashing fish up on the banks, chasing them out of the water. Mm. You know, certainly the deep holes are almost sure to have some fish in there, but the challenge of those deep holes is if they're in there, they're not necessarily feeding. Um, but they might if they see a big mouse swimming across the surface. So you kind of just fish everything, and it, it's every cast you got to be ready because they can come out of nowhere and rock your world real fast. What rods do you bring over there? What weight rods? What kind of lines do you bring? Uh, I typically fish them eight and nine weights. Um, I have a eight weight switch rod I like as well for casting out of the boat, especially if I'm throwing really big stuff. You don't have to fish really big stuff, but if you do, a switch rod can be kind of a nice little kind of trick just to chuck big stuff and overhead casting, just using two hands to save your arm a little bit. But otherwise, eights and nine weights are fine. Depending on the year, day in and day out, the number one line is going to be a floating line. I'm a big fan of the Scientific Angler's Titan Taper. I think that's the perfect timing line. The fish tend to look up. They're aggressive. They're predators. And whether it's a surface fly or even a streamer just near or at the surface, usually that will work. On those rare days, weeks where they're hunkered down a little bit, then a sink tip line is a good idea just to get the fly down to them. So I say if you're only going to bring one line, bring a floating line. If you're going to bring two, which I recommend, bring a floating and a sink tip and have both rigged and ready to go. Okay, okay. Any other equipment other than what we'd normally think to bring on a trip, thinking, like, you know, Rocky Mountain fishing trip, uh, you know, anything that people say, oh, I wish I would have brought this or that on the trip? Uh, finger tape or stripper fingers, things to protect your fingers. That's a big mm -hmm. one. Okay. Um, okay. You're casting, stripping, like streamer fishing all day long. Um, and, you know, it's like, imagine. The take on a tie-in, the closest thing I've found is a tarpon. And so when okay. they take, you're strip striking and you're striking hard. They have really, really hard mouths like a tarpon does, and you're it's a tarpon hook set on these fish. Okay. So if you're having a successful week where you're moving fish and getting some hookups, uh, you can plan to get some line cuts on your fingers. So have some uh, – I guess that goes back to the first aid question too, but <laughs> mm -hmm. have some figure yeah. tape and some uh, flex wrap and things to protect your fingers because good likelihood that you'll get some line cuts if you're having a good week. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. And you had mentioned before you do drift fishing, wade, uh, both both of those, depending on the situation. Um, kind of this, obviously, we don't have any time in the United States. I think the only other place I've heard of timing is uh, north part of Japan, I guess, there's a timing, maybe not the same kind of timing that you have in Mongolia, but... Um, Describe the fish for us, you know, what we're looking at just visually. Yeah, it's an interesting species. Actually has perhaps historically the largest distribution of any trout species. Um, mm. Between the, there's four or five, I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't, four or five different subspecies, and they range all the way to Eastern Europe. They used to call them the Danube salmon there. That's a different subspecies the European taimen. There's still some populations there in Eastern Europe. The Siberian taimen is the largest of them. That's the one that historically went all across Russia, and that's what we have in Mongolia. And then there's Sakhalin taimen. That's the one that you see a little bit of in Japan uh, and the Sakhalin Islands in the far north 
east of Russia. And then there's actually a very, they're almost extinct, but there's some in northern China as well. But there's a good chance those ones are extinct. So, and sadly, the Taiman, and, you know, they're red-listed species globally because, you know, they have such a vast range historically. They're a species that's severely impacted. So um, most of the populations across Russia, Eastern Europe, definitely the Sakhalin Taiman, they're really imperiled. So we actually participated uh, through our friends at the Wild Salmon Center in a meeting that uh, we helped fund to pay or, uh, in Japan this spring of all the like time and biology experts in the whole world coming together to talk about the species and what we can do to help protect and preserve and keep this species going. And one of the cool things that came out of that was that, hey, some of the only success stories about time in the whole world right now are Fish Mongolia and Mongolia River Outfitters and the 20 years of you know, community-based conservation that we've been doing on those rivers to keep these rivers safe. And so we're trying to take the model that we've done there and find other places to utilize it to help bring the species back in other places. It's an amazing species. As far as looking at them, they are the largest salmonid on the world. So they're related to trout and salmon. They have a slow growth cycle. A matured taimen that's 40, 50 plus inches is going to be 40 to 50 years old, most likely. So it's not a fast growing fish. Yeah. Not necessarily, but they're really fast to get predaceous. So they start eating other fish by the time they're like six inches old or something like that. Mm. Um, so like they start on bugs and they move to meat really quick, and then they're predators the whole rest of their life, and they'll eat anything. And that's kind of what makes them fun as a as a fly rod species. So they look like a big trout. They have a harder mouth species, like I said. So that's where hook sets, sharp hooks are key. But one of the most defining features, and if you ever look at photos of Taiman, this is what really stands out, is is their bright red tails. Uh, and it's amazing. You're floating down these crystal clear rivers, and suddenly you see a, a bright red tail. And that's often what you see of the fish, either that or a mouth coming in your fly that's huge. Um, because bright red tails are just spectacularly beautiful. And um, that's something that really registers in the mind of a lot of time and fishermen when they've spent time chasing that fish is seeing that red tail in the water. I'm like, wow, that's cool. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You said they eat anything. So you had mentioned mice before, too. Is that a popular fly to use? Oh, yeah, definitely. Mice, uh, one of our guides, Zobo, he ties his fly he calls Chewbacca. It looks like a 10-inch <laughs> long squirrel. <laughs> Well, that's yeah. the, the truth. That you know, when some of the first people started going over to Mongolia, you know, trying to experiment about this mythical creature called a taiman, you know, the way the locals would fish for them, they'd go and shoot a prairie dog, and then shove some treble hooks in it on a hand line rope and chuck it across the river, and that was how they taiman fished locally. So they oh, they're aggressive fish. They'll eat they'll eat just about anything. Sounds like it. So, so you had mentioned earlier you're going to be doing a lot of stripping over there. So, is basically that it? Is there any other form of fishing form other than than stripping? You know, flies underwater, on the top of water, whatever. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the norm. Okay. Predator fish that you're trying to entice them to eat. 
Um, I've done some fishing over there, especially I, I'm a big space fisherman. I like swinging flies for steelhead, so I always take a two-handed rod over there, and um, I'll get out, you know, in the morning or at lunch or sometimes hop out of the boat for a little bit during the day and just skate a fly, traditional, you know, big mouth fly, just twitch it and skate it across the surface. Um, but, yeah, you're typically, you know, they're not eating dead drifted nymphs or things like that, certainly. They're, right. they're looking for yeah. something moving that they can kill and eat. But that's the timing. You know, the trout, there's some really good trout fishing over there, too, and that's one of the underrated fisheries. We, we actually have some folks that come over every year just for the trout fishing, and there you're fishing hoppers most of the time, maybe a hopper dropper. If you wanted a nymph, you could probably catch more fish than you ever wanted to do, but you don't have to. So typically, you know, for trout fishing, we're fishing hoppers or woolly buggers or things like that. Yeah, I'd like to talk more about that here in a minute. I'm um, going to finish up with the time in here. Uh, how, you know, how hard is it to hook a, a time? Is it, um, are we talking like fishing for muskie, uh, the equivalent, you know, the, the fish of 10,000 casts, or is this easier than that? I mean, what are the expectations for a for Yeah, a it depends on the week. <laughs> it depends on the day. Um, but, yeah, it's maybe not the, 10,000 casts, but uh, it, it's it's work to find timing, certainly. Um, you're casting, you're fishing. I say my experience in the years I've been doing this and what I've seen from talking to guests week after week, season after season, you know, a, a typical day, and this can vary a lot, is going to be moving two to five fish. And that means maybe seeing them and they don't take. That means maybe hooking them and losing them. Uh, that means maybe landing one in, in the course of a day. Um, and that means there's some days where you don't see any, and there's, you know, some days where you see a lot. So, you know, I've had double-digit days over there, too. So it, it really can vary a lot. But mm -hmm. in general, you know, most people are going to encounter some fish every day, typically. Whether you connect with them or not, you never know. Whether you land them or not, you never know. But the fish are there. It's just a matter of finding them and, and finding them in the mood to, to follow and eat your fly. So you're fishing likely holding areas, I take it, and uh, doing a lot of blind casting, or are you doing uh, sight fishing at all? Uh, definitely at times sight fishing, for sure. Okay. There are times, like I said, especially when the rivers are clear, which is most of the time, not all the time, um, where you'll be floating along and, like you said, you see that bright red tail, like, oh, yeah, there's one. The guy will pull on the oars and get you set up, and you're sight casting of that fish, and that's amazing. Um, so that definitely happens. Uh, not every day, but most weeks, certainly. Uh, a lot of people have those sight fishing opportunities. It definitely happens. And when you're not seeing the fish, you're... Uh, I had this great conversation with this client yesterday that just got back, um, and he was like, yeah, I heard you described as blind casting, but I didn't see it that way um, hmm. because I didn't feel like I was fishing blind. Like I, every cast, I knew there could be a fish there. So it wasn't like I was fishing blind. I was watching the fly. I was looking for the fish. It could have been there. So I thought that was a good outlet like, because if you're considering yeah. it blind casting, then you're just kind of not into it. But if you're not into it with timing and you get that fit, you know, you, that one cast could be the one that has a 56-inch fish sitting there. And, yeah. and if you're thinking yeah. of it as blind casting, just kind of stripping like you do sometimes for trout, and you miss that fish, well, you're going to regret that for the rest of your life. So blind casting isn't quite the right turn. It's covering the water. 
and that's what we're doing. We're, we're covering the water because that fish could be anywhere. Yeah, kind of reminds me of, you know, like fishing channels in Belize for tarpon. You know, you're, yeah. you're in essence blind casting, but you know they're there because you just saw them surface, you know, they're moving through there, and you know they're out there. It's just making that connection, but yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, do, um, how do they fight? Do they jump? Do they hunker down on the bottom? Uh, do they run? What do they do? I've seen it all. Every fight is different. I've had fish jump multiple times and take me way into the backing. I've had fish that just bulldog it down low and don't run and just shake their head and make you work for every inch. And I've had everything in between. So every timing has a different personality. And you're going to see hmm. all of the above, potentially. What's the, uh, you had mentioned, a, you know, a 40-year-old fish was 40-plus inches or so. What's the average size of the fish over there? Uh, it depends a little bit on the river. So with Fish Mongolia, we do tend to hook slightly fewer fish on that river, but tend to be a slightly larger average size. Probably the average size on that river is between 35 and 45 inches. Oh, wow. take, average. Uh, yeah. yeah. The other river, uh, we tend to hook more fish, but we have a lot of encounters with smaller fish on that river. So there's still plenty of big ones. But because we're seeing more of those 20, 24, 29-inch fish, probably the average size of what we see in that river is a little bit lower. It's probably more 27 to 35-inch in that range. Hmm. Still a nice fish. But, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you tend to yeah. see the same numbers of bigger fish, you know, overall. You know, there's still 40-plus and 50-plus-inch fish on both rivers. Yeah. You know, sometimes you'll see them, and the smaller fish will get there before the big one, and... Sometimes you just miss the big one, but they're they're definitely there. Yeah. Anything else about the time in that you think folks would need to know? Oh, I actually skipped a question here. Let me, let me ask this first. Uh, Jeff Arterburn in Monta Vista, Colorado, asked, are there any aspects of timing behavior such as use of habitat and patterns of feeding that are similar to any other salmonids that would be useful for a North American fly angler approaching these fish for the first time? Um, yes and no. I would say you take everything that you've learned from every fish you've ever tried to catch and use that to try to catch time and then it will help. So there's certain things, if you've done streamer fishing for big brown trout, right, where you're dredging down deep and getting that fly deep and then swooping it downstream, you know, the whole Kelly Gallup technique, there's times where that can work in Mongolia. They're really hunkered down, you're fishing those deep pools, cast upstream, let it sink, and then rip it downstream, that works sometimes. Not all the time, but if you're having a day where you're not moving fish, it's worth trying. And sometimes that could be the difference in catching nothing and catching the fish of a lifetime. So taking all those things that you know and using them can also definitely help. But you definitely think of these fish, it's a predator species, right? So whether you're thinking, if you're comparing it to, you know, a, a cutthroat trout daintily slurping mayflies, no. That's not going to help you tie them. If you compare it to coho salmon, come after a polywog or a pike or a muskie or, you know, steelhead even. You know, when you hook a steelhead, yeah. hooking a timing feels similar in those first few moments. So there's definitely comparisons. I would say the more different fishing that you've done and the more experiences you have, the 
better you'll be able to tackle that time and scenario when it comes to you. Yeah, even like you said, uh, you know, the hook set for a tarp, you know, can come in handy. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, tarp and anglers I, do well. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. You know, you're right, though. I mean, with all the fishing, if you've done a lot of different kinds of fishing, you never know when you need to call upon that one little thing that you learned, you know, in that moment that's going to help you out. So it just tells us all that we need to be out there fishing more, right? <laughs> in different yeah. places at different times and different parts of the world, and that's our excuse anyway. So. Um, Amen. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you've been mentioning trout quite a bit. Uh, when we go on one of these trips, and I know there are other species. I know you guys fish Lenox, Grayling, Northern Pike, or not, yeah, Muir, Northern Pike. Is there, what's the possibility of combining fishing for, you know, different species in, in the same trip? All day, every day. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah, that's great. When I was on the river last summer, and I had a couple people that, they caught a couple time in early, and they're like, I've caught this fish. It's cool. It's awesome. It's hard work. I'm going to play around with some trout. And they had so much fun trout fishing, they spent the whole rest of the week trout fishing. The guy in the front of the boat fished for time, and the guy in the back of the boat fished for trout the whole week. No problem. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. That's great. So yeah, the trout fishing there can be phenomenal, like trout fishing anywhere. It varies day to day, week to week. But there's a lot of trout sure. in those rivers between the Lemmick and Grayling with Fish Mongolia. Uh, and then with Mongolia River Outfitters, there's Lenick and there's Amur Trout as well. And, yeah, they'll eat hoppers or small streamers or dry dropper setups. So really it's just a matter of, and this is the hardest part, and I've struggled with it personally as well because partly why you go so often is to catch the timing. And the only way to catch the timing is to fish for the timing. So if you take that <laughs> yeah. commitment and put the eight weight down and grab the five weight, you're running the risk of not catching the timing, but you're also going to have a blast catching trout. So do yeah. it, you know, yeah. and um, the guides are pretty timing centric, but they're also great trout fishermen. So if you just mention to the guys, hey, let's, let's fish for trout for a little bit, you know, you've gone half the yeah. day, haven't moved a fish. Can we try to catch trout? Sure, let's do it. You know, they'll love it. They're happy to do that. Yeah. They, you yeah. know, they're so... Yeah, and, they can, you know, and the, the trout fish are getting pretty good. I mean, the Lenox are, we catch them daily over 20 inches. They're good average size. They fight hard. The grayling don't get big, obviously, but they're grayling. They're beautiful. They're fun. They like dry flies. They'll eat anything. I caught a, about a 14-inch grayling last summer on an 8-inch timing fly. It was crazy. I don't know how it got it in a tiny <laughs> Well, that mouth. just showed you, yeah, how crazy grayling are anyway. So. Mm -hmm. uh, now, is the, is the Lenox... Is that a trout, or is that a totally different species? No, it's a trout species. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's a okay. prehistoric sort of trout species. They're funny looking. They look like a cutthroat trout with a whitefish mouth on them. Um, mm. But they're pretty, and they get big, and they eat dry flies, so we love them. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I suppose if you're taking a break from the timing, if you do happen to see a red tail somewhere, you can always pick up the heavier rod and go for it, right? I mean, it's, uh, oh, you're not, you're, yeah, and we, you know, you're not, we, absolutely, we, we actually land timing almost every year on the trout rod when we've caught a grayling and then a big timing eats it. Oh, really? Sounds oh, like salt water fishing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then what about the, the pipes? 
The pike, we only have those on the with Mangola River Outfitters because that river drains into the Amur Basin, so you have that Amur pike that come up there. And they're a fun fish. They're beautiful. Uh, I think they're actually prettier than a northern pike. They don't get quite as big as the northerns do, but we still catch them 30, 35, 40-plus 40 inches. And they'll eat the same flies as the timon. We don't even bother using wire because we're fishing heavy, you know, 40-pound stuff for the timon anyway. But there's certain, you can catch them incidentally, and there's certain places where we target them specifically, especially on the mouths of sloughs and river channels and stuff. The guides love the pike. So if you tell them you want to catch a pike, they're, okay, they'll make it happen. Yeah, they're, same they're river, all in the same river system. Yeah, with Mongolia River Outfitters, yeah. We see more right, the right. lower you get. So like the lower river trips, there's, we tend to catch more pike than the upper, but there's a, quite a few on the upper. We see fewer of those on the Buriat stretches, but they're around. They migrate up and down the river as well, and there's certain places where we see them. So you're not going to catch a lot of them during the week, but if you target them here and there, you have a good chance of getting one. And they're fun. Like fun. Yeah, yeah, they're always fun. What, uh, you just brought something to mind. You know, you said, well, you don't need to bring flies. We've got you covered there. Bring the lines, bring the rods. Sounds like we need everything from five weight up to nine weight kind of to cover the, cover everything if we want to fish for everything. What about, you know, and I know this and you know this from places like Belize where locally you, you can't buy anything, right? I mean, leaders, you know, terminal tackle stuff. Do you have a recommended list of, or is that covered as well? Do you guys cover that kind of thing? Or is that something we need to bring? Uh, for terminal tackle? Yeah, yeah, leaders, yeah. tippets, shock tippets, so, that kind of thing. Yeah, kind of both. We send a big order from scientific anglers over every year, so we have a lot of stuff on the river. But, yeah, it's hard to get there. So if people can bring stuff, it's great. If not, we have it, no problem. But with timing, it's pretty simple. Monofilament or fluorocarbon, either is good, and 40-pound is the typical. If the water gets low and clear, we might go down to 30 or 20-pound. But we're just building straight tippets with that. And then for the trout fishing, uh, you know, 3X, seven and a half foot leaders are good. You don't need anything different. It's not technical fishing. Are the, um, going back to the timon, is, are they spooky? I mean, if you, if you see a, a red tail out there, are you going to spook them if you land on top of them or did, does that get them excited? Uh, you know, it, Every fish has a different personality. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, had, I've had them chase it right to the boat and miss them and throw it back out and miss. I've had fish that took me seven tries to hook and land, all right, like within five feet of the boat. So that's not a spooky fish. Um, no, no, you know. No. And I've had other fish that you know you land the fly five feet away at seventy-five feet and it. So, I, again, I would use that tarpon kind of mindset, right, where tarpon sometimes will eat anything that comes close to them, and other times they act like a bonefish, you know. So timing can yeah. be like that, too. More often than not, if you see them and get a fly in front of them, they're going to eat, but sometimes they can be skittish, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you watch those tarpon follow it all the way up, and you think they're going to take it, and they just turn away. <laughs> turn away. Yeah. I've seen yeah. that a lot with the red tails, yep. So does uh, figure eight under the boat work any good for timing? You know, I don't think it works like it does for pike with timing. 
yeah. you know, the, the better thing is just keep stripping. And it, it seems like if you get that close to the boat, they'll kind of disappear for a second and a short cast out to just start moving it again, you know, they'll come back to it. So for I, I wouldn't be surprised if that figure eight thing works, but I feel like when they get close <laughs> to the boat, they get at least a little bit leery, but they, yeah. they'll, they'll usually come back too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, time to finish things up here. Uh, you saw the question from Charlie Phelps there. Is yeah, that hi, you Charlie. Want to talk about tonight. Address that. Yeah, sure. We can we can talk about it real quick. Yeah, Charlie Phelps in Minnesota wrote in, and uh, Michael and Charlie know each other. Uh, he says, "Hey, Michael, uh, I understand that Fish Mongolia and Mongolia River Outfitters work on time and conservation products." with the Wild Salmon Center. I also understand that over the years, the Wild Salmon Center has worked on time and conservation products, projects in Russia, but that the Wild Salmon Center has recently been deemed an undesirable organization by Russia's prosecutor general's office. Are Fish Mongolia and Mongolia River Outfitters in a position to do any conservation work in Russia? Are you aware of any organization that has been able to fill the void created by Russia now considering the Wild Salmon Center undesirable. And you might need yeah, to give so some background there for everybody else that's listening. Yeah, totally. And it's a great question. And I, I know Charlie and, and he's great. He fished with us in Mongolia last year and you know the Wild Salmon Center has become a, a really great partner for us in Mongolia. It's kind of the bittersweet curse I guess of what's going on in Russia is now they have uh, the time and resources to dedicate to protecting time in Mongolia, which is great because we've been doing it on our own for 20-some years, and they're a really great organization. And uh, now they're jumping in with both feet to help what we're doing in Mongolia, which is awesome. But, yeah, the Russia thing, and for me it's sad. You know, I spent close to a decade working in Russia in the Kamchatka Peninsula all over there. I still have a lot of really close friends over there. I still keep in touch. Secretively, I'm sure I have a very thick file at the Kremlin, but it's sad what's going on over there, especially from a conservation standpoint. Because you know, the Kamchatkan Peninsula, and then there's there's some great work, you know, in in Siberia part with the Taimen as well, uh, and some of the biggest Taimen in the world come out of that part of Kamchatka, a place where they eat chum salmon and get really big. Same species we have in Mongolia, but they get bigger there because of their food source. Uh, it's sad what's going on there and the potential impacts to what the geopolitics is doing to fisheries, you know, both in Kamchatka and with the Siberian Taiman. So there's unfortunately not a lot that we can do in Russia directly, but I can say we're helping in ways that we can. We'll just keep that careful because the Russians are listening, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, Simon, and part of it, some of the stuff we've done internationally, you know, that, that takes in the bigger scope beyond the Wild Salmon Center and gets the IULM and some other organizations that aren't designated as hostile yet that can maybe potentially help because, you know, globally the Simon are in peril. You know, this is an amazing fish species that you know used to have this huge range and is, is not so today. So anything we can do anywhere to protect this amazing fish is great. If there's ways we can help our friends in Russia, we certainly can and will. But we're going to focus on Mongolia right now 
and uh, you know we got two examples that are kind of the shining lights in global conservation for time and and we're going to keep working to protect that 500 kilometers of river keep those fish populations growing use the anglers the traveling anglers to help work with the local communities to keep them safe and that's that's what we do so it's everything that we do the whole premise behind fish mongolia and mongolia river outfitters is time and conservation and working with the local communities so our staff come from those communities we work with the communities and and that's how it works we, we get them to help protect the rivers to protect the fish and make it so that it all keeps this fish around for a lot more people to experience because everybody should see this place and meet the people when they can yeah just a quick question about the rivers themselves. Are the headwaters, or or did, do they flow north and south? I mean, are the rivers connected to Russia in any way uh, that uh, where you're sharing the water with them? Uh, yes, for sure. <laughs> so okay. with Fish Mongolia, so, that river actually starts in Russia. Um, okay. Our uppermost headwaters trip starts very close to the Russian border and then goes south for a ways there before turning west, or I'm sorry, before turning east, and ultimately flowing back into Russia to go into Lake Baikal. Uh, The other river with Mongolia River Outfitters also starts in Russia, comes down through Mongolia. We start close to there, fish it for close to 300 kilometers, and our final camp is not far from the Russian border as well. So... No security so issues or anything like that. But, yeah, you can see Russia from some of our trips. Safely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, and what I was getting at is, too, is if they are interested, there's a shared purpose there for conservation, right? I mean, if, uh, if the water is shared by, by both countries, then you would hope that they would be concerned and be conservation-oriented. But, um, oh, there's, there's a lot of people in Russia that are. Definitely, but yeah. I don't know how much of a voice they have right now. Uh, right. Yeah. Which, yeah. you know, so a lot of them, yeah. to be honest, have left the country. But there's still some yeah. that are there that are fighting, but they're they're being careful how they do it right now. Right, right, right. Okay, well, it's, uh, there's a, yeah. just real quick, there's a great, one of our yeah. head guides has been with us forever. His name's Peter Fong. Uh, and a few years ago, before Ukraine and all this stuff happened, he did a really cool trip. Um, where he started with the headwaters of this river and floated all the way into Russia uh, to where it goes into Lake Baikal. And he's got a book uh, coming out, I think, this fall or winter. Um, again, Peter Fong, the book is Headwaters to Baikal, I think. Uh, and if people are interested in that, it'd be a great read. He's a phenomenal writer, um, well, well published as well. So pretty cool story about Taiman and Mongolia and Russia and, and that whole river system. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. All right, well, we've got to wrap things up here. I've run out of time, but stick with us here, folks. We're going to be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, and we're also giving away a book uh, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So hang tight with us, and we'll do that right after this announcement. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, 
peer coaching, a nurturing support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how to support the retreats, visit fishon.org. Again, that's fishon.org. Or call them at 616-855-4017. Again, fishon.org. Or call them at 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website, Tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of this show? Just click on that link, leave your comments, and we'd really appreciate it. Now it's time to give away our prizes. The winners of our drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do so for our next show. So you don't miss out on any uh, chance to win some of our great prizes. If you are one of the lucky winners, we'll contact you after the show to collect your information so we can deliver your prize to you. So first, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about them, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Flyfishersinternational.org, great organization to support and be part of. Okay, let me fire up my database here. It looks like, uh, oh, Jeff Arterburn from New Mexico that asked the question earlier tonight. So, Jeff, great. You've got uh, a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, so congratulations on that. And let's see. For our one-year uh, membership to Trout Unlimited, we've got Tom Paulson in California. Tom Paulson. So congratulations to both of you gentlemen, and I know you'll enjoy your, your prizes. Now we'll give away the book from Stackpole Books. And I'm clearing my queue here out, and we had a few more questions come in there at the end. Sorry, folks, but I can only cover so much. Always sorry about that. Never seem to have enough time. Okay, question. Answer this question by filling out that form on our homepage of the website, askaboutflyfishing.com. Uh, real simple question tonight. For most of the trip, uh, you're going to spend uh, luxurious accommodations in what? Where are you going to sleep at night? Where are you going to sleep at night? In what kind of shelter? So let's see. Uh, you've got, nope, it's not a yurt. It's not a yurt. Got our first answer in. Oh, maybe this is harder than I thought, Michael. <laughs> Cabin. <laughs> Trag. It, it came Trag. before the yurt. It's like Trag. a yurt, but better. Yeah, Trag, Trag up in Moscow is always quick on the trigger, I tell you, in answering these questions. Uh, so he had yurt, and then he tried cabin. No, that's not it. I uh, well, we'll have to see here. You decide, uh, Michael. But the answer is G-A-R-E. Should we uh, give him the prize? G-E-R. Yeah, that's cool. I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure everybody knows. I think he, he knew what he was talking about, but uh, yeah. didn't know how to spell it. So that's David Myers yeah. in Pine, Colorado. Fine. David, you're I'm just down the road for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, David, you're just... Uh, down the road from me in Pine. I'm up in Bailey, so um, yeah, we should uh, connect sometime. 
Uh, David, send me your uh, shipping. Well, no, I take that back. You can send it when you tell me what book you want. I am going to send you a list of books that you can pick from, and at that time you can send me your, your shipping address so that uh, I can get that book shipped out to you. Or maybe we can meet somewhere and uh, I'll hand it over to you. So uh, we can work that out. That's it. Um, we had other people playing. Jeff, who won the other prize, uh, had the correct answer as well. Treg's still trying, tenth. <laughs> yeah, close. Kind of like a tenth, right, uh, Michael? But um, a little bit more specific. Anyway, hey, Michael, it's been a pleasure talking to you tonight. Of course, I always love talking about fishing. And um, thanks so much for sharing all your experience uh, worldwide. Sounds like you've had an incredible life fishing, and uh, I appreciate you sharing all that with us. So thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top line of our menu. In the archive, you're going to find past shows, over 380 shows, I think, now, which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, diamond, Mongolia, Madison River, whatever. And uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find there. And we've just got an incredible library of some incredible people being on our show, just like Michael. Our next broadcast will be on October 11th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. On that show, I'm going to interview Steve. Bird, Stephen Bird, and our topic for the show will be trout spay and the art of the swing. Stephen started trout spay fishing long before the current trend started, and uh, many fly fishers equate spay fishing with steelhead or salmon on large rivers, but it certainly can be applied on small rivers and streams for trout just as effectively. Join us and learn about the gear, flies, and techniques used for trout spay fishing that you can use on your next outing. And be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar right under Stephen's picture on our homepage is a place where you can just click on the calendar links and add it to your calendar, and then you won't miss the show. Uh, I would like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Lee's Ferry Anglers, and Ugly Bug Fly Shop, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.